from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. The Christian Church has based much of its theology and authority on the book of Acts in the New Testament. Church historians have relied on Acts as telling an accurate history of the beginnings of the church. But what if it is more fiction than history? For the next two weeks, I'm speaking with scholars who, after a 10-year study, have made some exciting conclusions about the book of Acts and Christian origins. Today, I am excited to have on the phone with me uh, Professor Joseph Tyson. He is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. He is the co-editor, along with Dennis Smith, of Acts and Christian Beginnings, the Acts Seminar Report. This is a report of the Jesus Seminar in the 80s. The uh, Jesus Seminar worked on the historical Jesus, uh, his deeds and his words, and the Acts Seminar worked on the book of Acts to determine what was historical about it. And Professor Tyson is on the phone with me uh, to talk with me about that book. Welcome, Professor Tyson, to Religion for Life. Thank you very much, John. Give me a quick uh, overview, if you would, of the Acts Seminar, what it set out to do and, and what it did. Yes, you, uh, you said that it was uh, part of the Westar Institute, and that is correct. The Westar Institute, as uh, a lot of people know, began work on Jesus and started what they call the Jesus Seminar, and their publications um, have been uh, widely distributed and, and well-known and well-discussed. Um, the Westar started in 1985, but by the year 2000 or so, they had uh, felt that they had at least come to a tentative conclusion about the Jesus uh, Seminar in regard to the Jesus Seminar, and that it was uh, good to go on to something else. So they uh, asked uh, some of us to begin a a follow-up seminar on the Book of Acts, called the uh, Acts Seminar, quite appropriately. It was a remarkable group of absolutely first-rate scholars. Um, Some of them were senior scholars, some junior scholars, some in mid-career but all of them are scholars who had a track record of some sort in the study of Luke and Acts, and and they were willing to work on a, on a on a common project. So we met for a decade, twice a year, came together, and usually in Santa Rosa, California, very nice place to be, um, and and we stayed for two or three days and had intensive discussions of prepared papers. Most of the people, by the way, came at their own expense. Uh, some, in some cases, they had the support of their institutions, but uh, most paid their own way. Dennis Smith chaired the group, guided the agenda, made sure we discussed all the parts of Acts and left nothing out, um, discussing our papers. And um, so by 2010 or 2011, it seemed time to publish our results. In fact, um, our founder, Robert Funk, continually encouraged us by coming into our room where we were deliberating and saying, when the hell are you guys going to get something published? <laughs> With great encouragement like that, we had to, we had to work hard. 
<laughs> well, that's great. That sounds very much like uh, Robert Funk. Um, t- uh, tell us a little bit uh, about the method. I-, I know when looking through uh, the sayings and deeds of Jesus, you could go through the tradition and say, uh, yes, it looks like he said that, no, perhaps not, or, or maybe. Uh, but with the text of Acts, you had to do a different method. Yes, it did. Uh, but we were still using basic, uh, basically understood historical methods uh, for doing this. That is, we were, we thought of ourselves as historians, uh, putting on those glasses or putting on those hats for the for the time that we were working on it, um, not not considering any religious implications at this at this point. But. Um, one of the methods that one would use in studying history is to compare various texts that might have some bearing on the um, period that you're discussing. The problem with Acts is there isn't much else. Um, it has been a kind of a default position for many historians. Many quite respectable historians will tell you right at the beginning of their work that Acts may not be totally reliable, but then they go ahead and and reconstruct the history of early Christianity using the text of Acts. And this seemed to us not to be a reasonable position. Uh, At some points, of course, um, there are other texts, and I'm thinking here of the letters of Paul. Um, The book of Acts deals with the with Paul for a number of chapters. For a great deal of the book is devoted to him. And so in those places where we have letters of Paul and we have material from Acts, that material those things can be compared. And at some points there are problems. And these are not new. We didn't discover these. Everybody knows them, I think. But let me just give you one example. Uh, Paul, in his letters, insists that he is an apostle. In Acts, he is not given that title, maybe accidentally once, but um, in the place where the, the apostles are appointed by the risen Jesus in the first chapter of Acts, there's a list of 12 apostles, and he's not one of them. He could not be one, because according to Acts, a requirement for an apostle is that you have to have been with Jesus during his lifetime. Paul was not, and the author of Acts knew this. Of course, Paul knew it too. Um, but that, that, that is a discrepancy, which one would be right. We think that in general, the um, way that in, in which Paul deals with things in his letters should have priority. Uh, Acts is, in this sense, a secondary source, and um, if we find discrepancies between the two, we would tend to favor uh, the letters of Paul. But in in other respects, where we have no other information, uh, what do you do? Well, if you find that Acts has been undependable in reporting material about Paul, where we can make some comparisons, we would have some suspicion about the rest as well. So we think the burden of proof, in a sense, is on showing that Acts is a reliable history. Now, our job uh, that was given to us by Westar was to determine 
which parts of Acts are historical and which are not. It turned out that we found rather little that we could, with real confidence, uh, say this is this is historical. There are some points that we can talk about later, but um, that was our job. We were to look at it as historians, not to look at it in in terms of its value judgments or anything of that sort, but rather its history. And we determined that it was not a reliable history. And that is a pretty big statement. Um, the fact that uh, we re- uh, the church certainly has regarded uh, the book of Acts as a foundational historical document about the church itself, but you found in your study that it was really uh, not an historical document. Well, what kind of literature would you call the book of Acts? Well, we use the term myth, and uh, I'm not comfortable with that term. It's, uh, it's a difficult one. Uh, to explain and, and even to understand, but uh, we would say it is myth and not history. And let me go on to say something about that. I, I understand myth to be a fictive a narrative construction that serves as a kind of a charter text. And I, I can think of one parallel to this. It's, it's hypothetical but it's nevertheless a possible parallel. You might think of a constitution in narrative form. The U.S. Constitution, for example, is, uh, is meant to lay out the principles and procedures by which this nation is to operate. Uh, and it does it in an orderly, discursive way. But you could also present the same ideas in narrative form. We could perhaps have a story about the first president. And, and this story might show him to, uh, to observe the principles that, uh, that are intended to serve the new nation. It might, for example, show him as dealing with Congress and the courts. I think such a, uh, that kind of narrative would be a myth of Christian origins, even if it told actual people. But we wouldn't approach that narrative assuming that the events really happened we'd have to subject that to historical critical analysis, just as all texts would make historical statements would. And that, that's what happens in a narrative of this sort. Of this sort. Um, I'm not sure that myth is the best term, but um, it is a kind of a charter narrative. It was meant to be a kind of a constitution in a way, a na- in, in narrative form, for the second century church, we think. And so with that, the author of Acts, whoever that might have been, uh, really uh, was had creative freedom to write uh, his narrative and the way he needed to write it. Uh, what do you think is uh, an overall purpose of what he did? In fact, you yourself have talked about him of, as, as um, one of the purposes for Acts is to contradict uh, an early church figure named Marcion. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes, indeed. Um, I was impressed with um, Richard Pervo's work um, in 2006, in which he dated Acts in the second century, and, and I became convinced that he was right about that. But then I asked, what might have been the real context in which, um, in which this book was written? And it 
seemed to me the more and more I the, the more I looked at it, it seemed that um, it it read best as a kind of counter narrative to what Martian was doing. Now, now in, in to, to study briefly, uh, Martian contended that um, the God of Jesus Christ was not the God of the Old Testament not the God of Israel, not the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and, uh, and the twelve tribes, uh, not the God who inspired the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Um, those, were, um, those were called by the God who created the world and acted in judgment. Now, we might think of those as good things. Martian thought of them as evil things. Uh, judgment and creation are, for him, evil things. Jesus came, said Martian, to free the world of that God and to deliver the subjects of that world, us, uh, to uh, the good God, the, the, the God who uh, acts in love and grace. Now, there may be some good things in Martian, but it seems to me that uh, that what Acts has done is on almost all those points shown that that is not, not the case. Um, chapter after chapter tells of, of the connection that Christian belief has with the Hebrew prophets. Uh, Jesus is shown to be the son of the God of Israel, not some other God. Uh, Martian had also contended, by the way, that Paul was the only apostle, that Peter and the others were uh, false apostles. Now, if you if you read Acts seriously, you find that uh, Peter and the others are elevated as true apostles. Um, Paul is not suspect, but he's not called an apostle in the sense demoted uh, from the way that uh, Martian would put it. Uh, but on, on, on those points, it seemed to me that uh, the author of Acts was attempting to counteract the influence of Martian. And Martian had a great deal of influence in the early 2nd century, it seemed to me. Uh, we know that later on, some of the church fathers used Acts exhaustively in their battles against Martian. And everybody knows that. My thinking is that Acts was written partly, at least, for that purpose. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Professor Joseph Tyson, Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University, a member of the West Star Institute, and the co-editor of the Jesus Seminars volume on Acts, Acts and Christian Beginnings. And he's with me to talk about uh, that book. You know, all of the events that happened, uh, Paul's speeches, the shipwrecks, um, his being brought bo before councils and what that, all of that is really creative fiction. Is that right? I think it is. And again, uh, a, an awful lot of that is uh, to counteract the influence of Martian. Uh, Martian understood Paul, I, I said this already, that as the only apostle of Jesus. And um, I might add that he stressed his rejection of all things Jewish. Now, we might not read Paul that way these days, and I, th I think we are right in, in not reading it that way. But I think Martian understood Paul as rejecting 
Jewish Torah, uh, the Temple, all uh, all things that you might think of as Jewish. Now, when you read Acts, um, how is Paul portrayed? Paul is a loyal, faithful Jew. He's a Pharisee. He believes everything in the Bible. He uh, he his life is one of Torah observance and all the rest. That that is stressed, it seems to me, throughout Acts. Now, why is that? I think it is so that uh, um, one can take that contention of Martian and just turn it on its head. So there is a sense in which there was really a, a battle in early Christian history for who Paul was and what he meant and what he said. Great deal of great deal of struggle about that. Uh, there is even in, even in the New Testament itself. Um, there's the statement in First Peter that uh, there are things that are difficult in Paul to understand, and everybody takes them and interprets them in his or her own way and to their own detriment. <laughs> this, I think, indicates that uh, that kind of struggle that is going on. And we can see this later in, in uh, some of the Gnostic writings and some of the, uh, uh, some of the writings of the Church Fathers as well. One of the um, storytelling devices that uh, uh, your acts that the Acts seminar pointed out was uh, understanding Acts as kind of an, an ancient um, saga or quest or, or legend, something like uh, uh, Virgil's Aeneid or something like that. Yes, indeed, uh, and we we wanted to indicate our um, our agreement with Dennis McDonald's work in particular. Dennis was a member of our um, our team in this and uh, showed us rather conclusively that there are so many parallels between Homer and uh, and Acts that a lot of us may not have seen, you know, unless you know Homer as well as Dennis does. Um, so I think that uh, epic is, um, is influential on Acts. Talking about um, the dating of Acts, uh, what date would you then give to the book of Acts? I, I tend to put it about 115, 120. Uh, this is the date. Uh, I don't disagree with Pervo on this, and I think I'd have to say that Richard Pervo has done the uh, the real uh, the difficult work on this. Richard's was an extensive and detailed study of this dating issue. He published that in 2006. He, he pointed out some known facts. Um, on external issues, he, he showed that there were no references to Acts before 150. No references to Acts before 150, and uh, probably none before 175. So, you know, this means there's nothing that compels us to date it before 150. Now, of course, it may have been written before that and ignored, but um, if you turn then to internal evidence, uh, Pervo suggested that a date after 100 uh, is necessary because his word studies, his comparisons with other literature showed that the author of Acts was familiar, for example, with Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews. And we know that was written about 94. Uh, so it has to be after 94. But he and others, Pervo and others, have also shown that the author of Acts was familiar with some of the letters of Paul which, of course, were written earlier, but were not collected and known widely 
until about 100. So for this and various other reasons, he felt that a date between 100 and 150 is necessary and concluded that um, uh, 115 to 120 was the most appropriate um, because of its uh, agreement with some other things of that time. Um, and I, and I, I totally agree with that, uh, with that dating. What does this mean for uh, the Gospel of Luke? If the author of Acts has been considered to be the same one as who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, what are some possibilities for the dating of Luke? Yeah, uh, one possibility would be that uh, Luke also, the, the Gospel of Luke, was also written in the second century uh, at the same time as, as, as Acts. In my own view, I tend to see it a little differently. I think that uh, the Gospel of Luke went through several editions. Um, we know that this is the case, actually, because there are references to the fact that um, Martian had a copy of Luke that was a little different from that that was regarded as canonical a little later on. Now, the question is, which of those two came first? We don't know for certain. I contend that God, that Martian's version did come for, before the canonical version, and uh, so the canonical version of the Gospel of Luke was written partly in order to counteract Martian as well. Uh, the most glaring example of that would be the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, the birth narratives which we, we, we treasure these days. I do, too. But it, seemed, it seems likely that those two chapters were written by a different author from the one who wrote the rest of it. That's been contended um, by scholars who would not agree uh, with us about the date of Acts. But to, to make a long story short, I think that the author of the edition of, of Luke Sorry, um, the author of the edition of the Gospel of Luke that we have in our Bibles today probably is the same as the author of Acts. So that is what ties them to, together. But um, the, that author did some things with a version of Luke that did not have the first two chapters and a few other things uh, scattered throughout the text of, of Luke. One of the conclusions that the Acts Seminar made was that uh, Jerusalem is not the birthplace of Christianity, and, and the story at the, of Pentecost that uh, the Church often celebrates on Pentecost Sunday is, is more fiction than history. What do you think, um, kind of step out of the historian's hat perhaps, what do you think this means for the Church's self-understanding if its document of origins is, is regarded as myth as opposed to history? This is a serious question. I'm, 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 glad you, I'm glad you raised it. Acts does more than just talk about Pentecost as the beginning. It, it talks about the rise of a single community of Christians, a small community to begin with, but one that grows in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem under the leadership of former disciples of Jesus, all acting in harmony, never with any contention, or with very little, and with goodwill all around. Now, serious readers of the Bible have known all along, it seems to me, that this is not an adequate description. If you read what Paul wrote about those, those times, 
you know that he saw things differently, that he showed that there was much less goodwill, much less unanimity. There was controversy. There was diversity. People didn't all agree with each other, uh, and that there were communities of Christians in various places, not just in, in Jerusalem. Uh, more generally, John, I think your question raises the issue of biblical interpretation and authority in general. Mm-hmm. And in, in my view, the churches, for the most part, have long recognized that uh, interpretation is fundamental uh, and, and absolutely necessary. The early Christians, who stood strongly opposed to Martian, uh, found that they could not take the Old Testament literally. The Old Testament was their Bible, and they could not take it literally. Martian insisted on literal interpretation, and, and they rejected Martian. So they knew that somehow or another that Bible had to be interpreted in non-literal ways if it was going to serve the purposes of the church. Uh, much later time, Christian leaders recognized that there are a number of issues, of issues on which you cannot take the Bible literally. Take the issue of slavery. We came to the view, I think, that human slavery is wrong even if the Bible supports it, and it does. And now some churches recognize that it's wrong to regard women as second-class citizens, even if that's the predominant view of the Bible and the view of Acts, which has exclusively male leadership. Um, I'm not suggesting that we simply regard the Bible as fiction, but but rather that we've always had to interpret it, and we still do, and we still do. Um, what effect does this have on the church's understanding? I don't think we're saying anything different from what most enlightened Christians have said for a long time. That is that the Bible should be taken seriously, but not literally. Um, if our study shows that the church didn't just begin in one place with a, uh, an unquestioned leadership, then we have to, we could conclude that it did begin, it did have multiple beginnings in various places, but most of all with a diversity of viewpoints. And after all, the modern church is not so different from that, right? Well, that's right. Uh, what, um, just a final question here, what has been um, the critical response that you've uh, received uh, regarding Acts and, uh, and Christian beginnings? Actually, I guess it's still a little early for that. We have not had any um, that I'm aware of, and I think I would be aware of them if we, if we had any. So at the same time, I think we would, I anticipate that some of the critical review will be we're not saying anything terribly different from what has been said for a long time. And that's true in, in the most part. But I think we're doing it in a more consistent way um, <clears throat> and probably coming to somewhat more radical conclusions than, uh, than other scholars have, have, have come to. And uh, let me add, we attempted to do this in a way that is, that is publicly accessible. Much of the scholarly literature, including my own, is, is obscure <laughs> to most people. 
And um, we wanted to do something a little different here. We don't just talk to each other, but we want to talk to a wider public. And, and uh, so we hope that we accomplish that. We won't know that for a while, but we, we hope that we have. Joseph Tyson has been my guest on Religion for Life, Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University and the co-editor of the book by the Jesus Seminar on the book of Acts, The Acts and Christian Beginnings, an important book for study of Christian origins and of biblical literature. Professor Tyson, thank you for this work and for being with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. To hear a podcast of this program, go to religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.